Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm your host, Evan Gottesman. Israel Policy Forum recently launched our Realistic Reset Initiative, and one of the pillars of that project is rebuilding U.S.-Palestinian ties. And a key part of that is opening up diplomatic channels that had been closed over the past four years. And one of those channels was the U.S. Consulate in Jerusalem. Last week, the Times of Israel ran a pretty comprehensive story on the U.S. Consulate's closure. There'll be a link to that in the description. And today, I'm speaking to one of the people who was interviewed for that story, Ari Gore. Ari is a Chicago native who spent the last decade studying and serving as a U.S. diplomat in Damascus, Amman, Riyadh, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Washington, where he focused on economic policy, private sector engagement, served as the staff aide to former U.S. ambassador to Israel, Dan Shapiro, and most recently served as the senior economic officer for Gaza policy at the U.S. Consulate General in Jerusalem before it was closed. A born national security scholar, Ari has an MBA in entrepreneurship from Tel Aviv University and undergraduate degrees in government and politics and Arabic from the University of Maryland. So Ari, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Taking a step back, can you describe the history of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem? What was its function as it relates to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and how was it different from the U.S. embassy in Israel? First things first, I'm not a historian, right? So I'm happy to speak in, in general and um, uh, based on my experience in its most recent iteration. But kind of going back 175 years to 1844, when President John Tyler first appointed a U.S. consul in Jerusalem, actually inside of the old city, um, back when the Ottomans were, were ruling the, the area. Its most recent location um, on a grown road um, just outside of the old city in Jerusalem uh, was established in, uh, I think, 1912 and has been there ever since. It's gone through a few different shifts. It expanded over a period of time. And actually now it, uh, it sits with Lazarus monks on, on, on the other end. I mean, Jerusalem is a, a, a fascinating city with tons of history. And the consulate general was... Um, no no stranger to a part of that history and complexity, of course, in the city. But the most recent iteration of the consulate um, took place in the 1990s, after the Oslo Accords, when the consulate general effectively became what was, until it was closed two years ago, the de facto representative office um, to, the, to the Palestinians, to the, and in this case, the Palestinian Authority. And tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up serving in the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem? Sure. I'm originally from Chicago. Uh, grew up going to a, a Jewish day school um, affiliated with uh, the conservative Jewish movement and uh, modern Orthodox synagogue and um, lived in Israel when I was 18 on a Young Judea program where I started to learn more about the complexity of the Middle East. And that's what got me interested in serving in the foreign service and getting involved in foreign policy. Um, and my first posting in Saudi Arabia, I um, came to understand the, the larger 
and uh, interesting place that the, the Gulf plays in the broader Middle East. And after that, I knew I wanted to kind of focus more on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, in general, most Foreign Service officers, are they're supposed to be generalists. So you might serve one tour in Tel Aviv, you might do another in Latin America, and then another one in Europe. I kind of pushed against that mold because I wanted to truly focus on this region because that's where I was particularly, uh, that's, why, that's where I found a lot of interest. So after serving in Tel Aviv for then uh, Dan Shapiro and also working as a consular officer, I knew I wanted to come back to kind of get a perspective from the other side. So that's actually unique as well, because it's generally rare that a foreign service officer will serve in Tel Aviv, or now it would be Jerusalem, but would serve on the U.S.-Israel bilateral side of things, and then shortly thereafter um, serve um, as a a diplomat focused on the, the Palestinian file. But I figured with my Arabic and my Hebrew, it would be a particularly interesting opportunity. Um, I don't think anyone truly understood uh, the, 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 the changes that would occur so quickly during the, the last administration, which, um, and this has been mentioned many times before, but is not a democratic or Republican uh, bend. It really does seem to be, or did seem to be a a shift from what had until recently been a bipartisan um, agreement by the U.S. as uh, how to approach the conflict and um, the U.S. relationship with both Israelis and Palestinians. Since Oslo and since the 90s, it was understood that the U.S. had a very important role, obviously as Israel's closest ally, um, but also as a respected mediator with the Palestinians and with you know, the rest of the larger Arab world. Being a great power, the United States is able to understand uh, the complexities in the region generally more easily than um, any other specific country here. So it was understood as being the the not just the great power, but a power that could be trusted as a mediator to deal with what is and unfortunately has been a, a very long conflict and still appears to be quite intractable. So the consulate was closed under the Trump administration, as we've discussed, but there was a period during the Trump administration where it was still open. They didn't close it on day one in 2017. So before its closure, how did the consulate's relationship with the Palestinians play out under President Trump? So Israel, Green Line Israel, and let's include um, the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, um, is a relatively small country, right? You can fit three in uh, Lake, inside of Lake Michigan. So we're talking about a relatively small space. But within this space, you have about 9 million Israelis, about 2 million Palestinians in Gaza, about 350,000 Palestinians living in East Jerusalem who have residency in Israel but not citizenship, and then about 2.5 million Palestinians living in, this, in the West Bank. And then I just want to share one kind of economic statistic that I think helps to contextualize the situation. So the average Israeli um, makes, in terms of GDP per capita, about $40,000 a year. The average Palestinian in the West Bank makes about $4,000 a year. And the average Palestinian in Gaza makes about $1,500 a year. 
that is such an enormous difference, right? So if it's the goal of the United States, the international community, to support a growing and stable region, clearly one of the most important things is going to be how do we make this region more economically secure, um, contribute to its growth, and um, allow for everyone to feel that at the very base, there is hope and better opportunities for the future. So where did the consulate fit into all of this? It was responsible for supporting economic cooperation between the United States and the Palestinian companies, the, the, the private sector, supporting economic cooperation between Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, and also the greater Middle East. On the political side, responsible for tracking the situation in both the West Bank and Gaza, we don't have the time today, but the complexity of the situation in Gaza with Hamas and the West Bank with Hamas and Fatah and all of the other parties, as I know that you've already been covering, elections are potentially coming <laughs> to, to the region. Um, and then building trusted relationships as our public affairs section uh, with the average Palestinian. When President Trump came um, to the to focus on shifts in the region, um, I'd like to share a, a list of things that happened in relatively quick succession. So not all of them are necessarily bad for the average Palestinian, but certainly many of them were perceived as trying to undermine an opportunity for Palestinian sovereignty or statehood or just um, dignity. One of the major announcements, of course, was the recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, with uh, no mention about uh, potent any potential uh, for Palestinian statehood or connection to Jerusalem. Um, there was a response relatively quickly thereafter by Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas to cut off contact with the consulate, at least at the official level, for a while. Um, and then a lot of economic shifts that seemed to undermine what the U.S. had been doing here for a long time, which was to support the, the basis for a two-state solution, right? So we have a large USAID pre presence here. Since the 90s, the, the U.S. government has helped support over a billion dollars of uh, infrastructure in the West Bank and Gaza. Most of that is water infrastructure, but also uh, roads. We're all aware of the cuts to UNRWA. I think it was 300 or $360 million in uh, the first year. Um, cutting off about $25 million towards the Jerusalem Hospital Network, which is a, a network of a number of hospitals and eye care center um, for Palestinians that, um, that treat challenging uh, diseases, cancers at the, at the highest levels, and then closing off uh, grants that would normally go towards peace building. So these signs <laughs> were not perceived by, I would say, the average Palestinian or the leadership as particularly uh, positive, right? Um, the U.S. closed the PLO representative office in D.C. Then there was the recognition of the Golan Heights as a um, sovereign territory part of Israel. The removal of uh, the words of occupation in the Human Rights Report, uh, the words settlement start, stopped uh, becoming part of the lexicon of the administration. Instead, the focus was on Jewish communities in the West Bank. So all of these um, different actions that were taken were obviously perceived to be uh, <laughs> against the, uh, the Palestinian position in the region. And 
the closure of the consulate was just another one to add, or at least that's how it was perceived by the average person. To be honest, there weren't that many articles published about the consulate's closure. I think the average person didn't see it as a big deal. But essentially what it meant when that happened, at least in my mind, is that the United States no longer believed that the two-state solution was a viable future possibility for Israelis and Palestinians. And so it was actually a very powerful statement um, of the direction that the previous administration would want to take things. That's a great point. I mean, with the closure of the consulate, there was also the merger of, uh, you know, its functions into the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem as a Palestinian affairs unit. So essentially, the statement from the Trump administration is not that these are two entities and hopefully eventually two states, but that the Palestinians are merely an appendage of Israel or that these are two parts of one whole. Um but I'm, I'm curious, how were things playing out between the consulate and the Palestinians before the consulate was closed? Because as you laid out uh, very well, the relationship between the Trump administration and the Palestinians uh, within the first couple of years of the administration uh, was not a very warm one, to put it lightly. Uh, there, there were all those actions taken that were perceived as hostile by the Palestinians. Um, so... How is that impacting your job working in the consulate? It's a great question. And certainly um, every additional announcement um, did not make it easier for the diplomats on the ground to do their job. But at the end of the day, that's what you're there to do. And you find ways to make it work. It's your job to build relationships. And if you're not going to be able to go in person to a ministry in Ramallah, then you find a way to have WhatsApp conversations um, or coffees in areas where it's easier to do so. Um, I want to give a ton of credit to the amazing um officers who are still working on this file as part of the Palestinian Affairs Unit. Um, they're, they're brilliant people, and um, you have to be creative, <laughs> right? At least in the short term. Um, one of the things, though, I would say is that you also want to make it easy, if possible, for folks to be able to meet with you, both publicly and privately. Because these folks need to go back to their own constituencies and explain why they're willing to meet with the Americans. If America's not supporting um, infrastructure projects or um, peace building opportunities or private sector uh, growth or appears to be reporting on some of the more unfortunate and um, challenging stories coming out of the West Bank and Gaza, then what reason would you have to meet with them? And so part of our job was to show, you know what, we can still do things. And that was one of the arguments by former Ambassador Friedman that, you know what, at the very least, now, if things go through me, they will go directly to the highest decision makers in Washington, D.C., because I have a close relationship with the president, which he did, um, and I have a close relationship with um, Secretary Pompeo, which he did. And so in the past, if we would send our reports or try to send a message back to Washington, 
uh, and it would go unheard, at least now it could be heard. <laughs> and we would try to lean on uh, the relationships that we had in order to continue to do our work. I think that for a period of time, you can convince someone <laughs> of that, that, um, that it's worth continuing to, to build. But after a while, it doesn't get easier. And it's, if, if anything, it gets, it gets more difficult to convince others that you're not simply gaslighting them and that you're not being gaslighted yourself, right? This was an unfortunate situation in the last administration um, for diplomats around the world where you would be in a meeting and a tweet would come out that would seem to go 180 degrees against what you were sharing in your talking points, um, right? Again, I'd like to believe and I do believe that that was an aberration of how U.S. foreign policy was conducted under a very specific circumstance. And that is not uh, a Republican or Democratic way to approach foreign policy, but merely um, an unexpected four-year, uh, hopefully blip in what will end up being a you know, much longer, credible U.S. foreign policy process in the long term. Hopefully. Right? <laughs> yeah, hopefully. It sounds like things, though, weren't in a great place to begin with by the time the consulate was closed. How did the Trump administration handle the actual closure of the consulate? And how did that impact your work? Because this is the institution you're working for, and suddenly it's closed down and merged into a different institution, into the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. So how did that all play out for you? Not well. <laughs> um, for uh, leadership, at least at the political appointee level, that seemed to come in from the private sector, um, where there was this assumption that they they knew how to do things efficiently and they knew how to do things well, it actually uh, had me remember something that I learned in my MBA a few years prior. I took this great course on change in global organizations, and our professor um, really underlined the importance of what's called the burning platform, right? So essentially, if you're going to force a company to make a massive change, if you're going to merge, or if there's going to be a takeover, whether it's hostile or friendly, you have to convince all the stakeholders that it's actually worth doing. And so they call this burning platform because essentially they have to be convinced that you're on a platform, it's burning. If you don't jump off, things will go poorly. And unfortunately, that did not happen at all, <laughs> right? There was no explanation as to why this was going to happen, um, very little opportunities to prepare um, for anyone at any level, from what I understand, even at the higher levels, to um, play out the second and third order impacts that this would have. As I had stated before, so the consul general and the most recent one who was forced to leave was Karen Sasahara. And her AOR, or Area of Responsibility, covered Gaza, uh, East Jerusalem, and the West Bank. So what does that mean? That means that she is, at the time, as the Consul General, the one responsible for any U.S. government official going in or out of those areas that needs to get approval. And I think that um, until that, so until that point, and historically, if... Um, the U.S. ambassador to Israel had to go to the West Bank for some reason. Traditionally, they would consult with and coordinate with 
the consul general and usually then actually use the consul general's vehicles and the consul general would accompany that person. My sense is that um, the previous ambassador didn't like having to get an approval from someone else. <laughs> Maybe that's one of the reasons why this happened relatively quickly. Um, one of the big and important parts of being the consul general and of course, all of those who reported to her, like myself in the economic section and everyone else, was the fact that you're a convener too, right? So it's not just the United States with a consulate general or a former consulate general in Jerusalem. You have most of the larger countries with one as well, whether it was in Jerusalem or a few were in Ramallah. So the Germans, the Dutch, the French, the British, uh, the EU mission, etc. And so we went from being able to invite everyone over to our consulate general to have discussions, to talk about how to implement um, new programs, to share ideas based on what the PA needed and was looking for and what would be acceptable to the Israeli government, oftentimes, though not always, um, to having none of that. Because at that point, essentially over a few weeks, everything ended up going through the ambassador. And the new leader of the former consulate general essentially just became a um, section head uh, among many other section heads at the U.S. embassy to Israel, essentially arguing that from now on, um, the relationship with Israel not just takes precedence, but is really the only direction to with which you can coordinate any sort of policy, share any ideas with Washington, D.C. And that, understandably, was not something that the PA um, or many contacts, even at the working level, were comfortable engaging with. Following the closure, as you just laid out, the former consulate, now the Palestinian Affairs Unit, was just one unit among many at the U.S. Embassy to Israel in Jerusalem. How is that different in practice from what the consulate was doing? How does this new U.S. Uh, Palestinian Affairs Unit function? I'll give you a few examples. So the first question I would just ask is, like, how does an embassy normally function? Right. So an embassy or a consulate has five general sections. You have a political and economic section. You have a public affairs section. You have a counselor section that deals with American citizen services issues like passports or visas for non-Americans who want to try to get a visa to travel to the United States. And then you have the management section, which is more an internal management part of the, the mission. So a, a great example for the public affairs section. Um, in the past, the consulate general had uh, a senior um, officer in charge of coordinating messaging as most embassy would, sort of like the, the sp a spokesperson, um, could control, for the most part, the, the Twitter account, Facebook account, right, to, to build a relationship with the people with whom the consulate was responsible for, for developing. So on uh, Muslim holidays or Christian holidays, you would tweet or share uh, holiday greetings in maybe English, but also the appropriate language in, in Arabic. Um, when the consulate was merged and became part of the embassy, you lost the ability to do that. <laughs> and in many times you were forced to simply retweet um, what the embassy was retweeting. So I was actually looking at the uh, Twitter from last year and the Palestinian Affairs Unit um, was probably 
required to retweet uh, everything about the Abraham Accords. There was a tweet about Passover, wishing everyone a happy Passover, focused on renewal and um, um, casting, right, casting off your oppressors. <laughs> so I thought that, you know, by being put in that position, you're um, sort of undermining clearly your your messaging um, because you're no longer speaking to the same audience, but the decision makers aren't even thinking of your audience at all because, you know, clearly the U.S.-Israel relationship is going to take a precedence on the um, economic and um, political side as well. There are some things that are just more complicated, right? One of the main responsibilities for diplomats, especially as a political or economic officer, is to write reports to explain what's going on in wherever you're supposed to serve. So Washington, D.C. is informed and understands what's going on so D.C. can make the best policy choices. And I think it's fair to argue that um, the Palestinian voice um, and perspective is not necessarily going to get through D.C. when it needs to be uh, approved or edited by the diplomats that are responsible for understanding the Israeli approach or narrative when it comes to any particular issue, which is understandable, right? There are many sides whenever something happens. Uh, historically, it was the responsibility of everyone in the region to play nice, to share with each other, but then to send back what you've learned from the people you're meeting with, um, and DC can make the final decisions. But I think it's fair to assume that since the consulate closed, a lot of that information is not getting back uh, in a way that DC would want to learn and understand. So it's much more difficult now for the United States to truly understand what's going on on the ground. And my question simply is, then why did we even close? What advantage was there in, quote unquote, right? because it wasn't a closure, it was billed as a merger, in merging the consulate with the embassy? And I don't have an answer. You know, I was going to ask you if, you think it's important that the United States maintains a separate mission to the Palestinians, but it's clear that you do, and I don't want to make you go back and restate everything you've just said. So given that, uh, we just spent the past you know, half hour speaking about the past, about what happened under the last administration, but now we're under a new president, new administration. What can the Biden administration do with regard to this issue? And is reopening the consulate in Jerusalem in the cards? It's a fair question. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I'd like to believe that it is. There were talking points shared last week as a readout from the secretary's call with um, the Israeli foreign minister. Secretary of State. The Secretary of State, correct, Secretary Blinken from the United States. So he emphasized uh, the administration's belief that Israelis and Palestinians should enjoy equal measures of freedom, security, prosperity, and democracy. So I would like to believe that um, maybe I'm reading between the lines too much, but that would suggest that the current administration understands um, the importance of reopening the consulate general in Jerusalem, and that it might be committed to it. And I, I truly believe that it is imperative 
if the new administration believes that a two-state solution is still viable. Because it is not that difficult to reopen. It will not require that much political clout in order to do. And if it can't even do that, then there's not a lot of hope for actually going into the nitty gritty and the difficult parts of the negotiations that would take to bring about some sort of mediated solution in the future. So at the very least, what the administration could and should do, and I'd like to hope will do, is go back to the status quo on this element, which would reset relations with the PA, with the average Palestinian who's just looking for recognition, and and allow for, hopefully in the midterm, some sort of return to what had been bipartisan policy on this issue for decades. We will have to see how that plays out. Of course, we are only in the first couple of months of this new administration, but as you've laid out so compellingly, there are a lot of reasons that the United States might want to reopen the consulate in Jerusalem. Thank you, Ari, for joining this episode of Israel Policy Pod and sharing your insights and expertise. Thank you for having me. And for our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll put a link to the original Times of Israel story if you want to learn more about the U.S. consulate and hear a little more from Ari. And we'll also have a link to our Realistic Reset initiative with additional policy recommendations about rebuilding the United States-Palestinian relationship, as well as three other core areas of focus. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Stay healthy.